0: In the Associated Press article, uh, there, there's an interview with somebody who went to one of these training camps to train the soldiers there, and their description of the camp of the camps are like very dire. Uh, you know, there's like no running water. Or, like the got the, the soldiers like didn't have any food or equipment, and it just doesn't. I mean, it paints a picture of, of like a really, uh, you know, terrible place to be. These camps, right? And not the sort of place where you're training a force, an elite force that will topple a government. You're listening to War College,
1: a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Hello and welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. This week, listeners, how not to plan a coup in Venezuela. On May 3rd, American mercenaries and Venezuelan expatriates attempted to enter the country with the goal of overthrowing the Maduro regime. It didn't go well. With us today is Giancarlo Fiorella. Fiorella is an investigator and journalist who's been covering the story at Bellingcat. His May 5th and 7th articles at Bellingcat demand to be read if you want to understand the weird comedy of errors that is currently playing out in Venezuela right now. Giancarlo, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, let's... I mean,
1: I don't even know where to start, really. Uh, I'll just... Okay, what is Operation Gideon?
0: Uh, sure, yeah. So, o- Operation Gideon is um, a an attempt by a group of expatriate Venezuelan soldiers, as well as um, members of a U.S. company called Silver Corps USA to, um, as far as we can tell, capture president maduro of venezuela and other high-ranking members of the venezuelan government and uh take them out of venezuela so fly, fly them to the united states um and to effectively in doing that uh topple the venezuelan government and how did
1: how did that work out for them how far did they get
0: well, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the short answer is that not not very far. Um, I, I should say, though, that uh, we don't know that there is any direct involvement from the from the U.S. government on this. So I, the research that we've done so far um, doesn't point in that direction. Um, we know for sure that there is a private company called Silvercore USA um, that um, that had provided security at some Trump rallies uh which in itself isn't suspicious or or uh, indication of any sort of collaboration uh beyond just a financial one a certain rallies because we know that Trump employs different and lots of different security companies and so we know that that organization um was involved in uh, a a plot by um people Venezuelan people who live in Colombia um, to to infiltrate Venezuela, as I said, and and and, and attempt to remove Maduro from power. So uh, that operation played out starting, as far as we can tell, starting on uh, Sunday, uh, May third, and, and there was two waves that came in two boats, and both of them were uh, located by the Venezuelan authorities at sea. They were intercepted, and uh, eight people were killed, um, and. Uh, now, over two dozen people have been arrested in connection to this operation.
1: No, that's a good point. I wanted, I do want to make that clear up at the top and maybe change my framing in the record in recording later. We don't know to what extent, if any extent at all, America has played a part in this. Uh, on the surface, just my surface read of it, is it does just feel like this absurd – set of circumstances that are just playing out in public and are very embarrassing all around, uh, for silver core USA in particular.
0: Yeah, there has been reporting that, um, so deck Murphy, um, is an individual who wrote an article, um, shortly after this all came to light. Um, and and it's been reported in other media outlets as well, that, that it's possible that the CIA knew about this plot, uh, at least on, on the silver core USA side. Um, I also read a report, um, I believe it was in the Washington Post, uh, that said that the CIA had sat in on a couple of meetings um, leading up to this, uh, presumably between Silver Corp USA and sectors of the Venezuelan opposition. And um, as Jack Murphy reported, the CIA supposedly attempted to talk the people involved in this uh, at Silver Corps from doing it, uh, and apparently that didn't work. Jack Murphy, is the is he the AP reporter? That's been hitting this. No, I, I know. So that's uh, Joshua Goodman. So yeah, Joshua Goodman is, has done ex, exceptional reporting on this. In fact, he wrote an article on May first that kind of brought it all to light, even before it, it started. He sort of introduced Jordan Goudreau, who's the the head of Silvercore USA, to this um, to this whole story. And he's writing for the Associated Press. So yeah, if you also want to read up so, on some really good reporting on this, even prior to the attempt. On, on May 3rd, uh, Joshua Goodman's work on, on the Associated Press is really good.
1: Okay, yeah, this, this this begs a question, and I think it, we don't have the timeline confused here, audience. This is what happened. AP publishes this very long, extensive, well-reported story on the 1st about this, about Silvercore, and about uh, Jordan in particular, who I think is just this amazing character that we'll get into in a minute.
0: Um, and then... They still go forward with everything on the 3rd? That's part of what makes this so confusing. So as you said, on May 1st, Joshua Goodman publishes this really uh, thorough piece on the Associated Press. And he basically says, look, there is a group of Venezuelan expatriate soldiers in Colombia, and they're headed by this guy called Cleaver Alcala. Uh, He's a he's a well-known figure in Venezuela. It was reported previously that he was in Colombia we knew last year, uh, that he was, uh, attempting to organize something like a mercenary force, uh, in Colombia that would potentially carry out some kind of military operation in Venezuela. So those rumors have been around for a while. That reporting has been around for a while. Um, and then Joshua Goodman's piece introduced, as he said, Jordan Goudreau to this. So, so, so if you read, and I recommend that you do read a uh, Joshua Goodman's piece from May 1st, he says, okay, so there's this, this sort of commenting, Uh, uh, mercenary kind of army that's growing in Colombia under the auspices of this Cleaver Alcalá guy. And then now there's this other guy. His name is Jordan Goudreau. And he talks about he introduces Silver Corp USA and he's a former Green Beret. And he had this agreement with uh, Alcalá and the Venezuelan opposition to train these soldiers that would eventually lead this mission into Venezuela. And what's fascinating about the article, I mean, aside from everything, like all of the details in it, is that you get the impression as you're reading it that Uh, Nobody really believed that this could go ahead. So, like, nobody involved thought it was a good idea, you know, beyond whatever Goudreau was trying to sell because he was trying to make money. Um, You get the impression step by step that uh, the opposition kind of gets the the sense that Goudreau maybe is not all there, that this isn't really a good idea. How are you going to infiltrate the country? And so, when you get to the end of the article, uh, you're left thinking, as certainly as I was, I was left thinking. You know, thank goodness this never happened because this would have been the worst idea ever. And sure enough, two days later, we wake up on Sunday morning and we're hearing reports from Venezuela of an invasion from the from the sea that there's a boat that's been intercepted. Uh, and it was the plan. It got kicked off um, on, two days after the publication of this article, which is one of the you know what one of the many weird turns that this has taken is the fact that the operation went ahead at all after that publication and
1: that they tweeted about it silver core usa tweeted about it on the third
0: yeah so what happened was on the third we wake up uh and I'm, i i see very early on in the morning probably about uh eight, eight nine o'clock in the morning uh there's been a, a press conference by the the minister of the interior of okay. venezuela and he says we've intercepted a ship of terrorist mercenaries That they were they were coming over to invade Venezuela and to uh, topple the government. And we've kept, you know, we've uh, I don't think he announced that anybody had died. But I think they eventually came out throughout the day that some of them had been killed uh, and that others had been arrested. And I remember thinking when that came out, that's really weird. Um, It sounds like that's what the article from two days ago was talking about. But surely it couldn't be that because, you know, like, why would you? launched the the the, uh, the invasion or whatever you want to call this this incursion when you have maximum visibility when literally the entire world now knows of your plans uh so i thought that the venezuelan government maybe had um uh, you know maybe they had arrested a, a drug trafficking uh, network or uh, you know they had intercepted a drug shipment and there'd been a firefight and, and 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 they were trying to paint this as like this invasion force that you read about two days ago But then what happened later that day on Sunday was that Jordan Goudreau appeared on video alongside a Venezuelan cohort. um, And and he said, this was us. So that thing that you read about this morning about the government intercepting that ship, that was us. That was the incursion that we had been planning that you read about. It's called Operación Gideon. And and it's it's going to and he very clearly sort of says, like, we're going to capture Maduro. It's ongoing. You know, one ship was intercepted, but there is more coming. And it just seemed completely bizarre, completely surreal. And as you, you said earlier, on Sunday night, the Silver Core USA account tweets. Uh it says there's a strike force on its way to Venezuela. It's got sixty people on a boat, and two of them are former Green Berets. And that's that's the entire message. So I went I went to sleep on Sunday thinking, okay, this has been the weirdest day I think that I can remember of covering Venezuelan events. And and surely this isn't like, there is no boat. Like, this tweet is a mistake. Like, there's some, something else going on here. Like, this is a joke or something. Um, but no, the next day we found out that, yeah, two U.S. citizens had been arrested aboard a boat. And the tweet was real. It was it was it was alerting the world. It was telling everybody that, that, that this was ongoing. So we know that he was a Green Beret in the U.S. military and that he served in Afghanistan and Iraq. And again, based on the reporting that we've heard from uh, the Associated Press, and other publications, he was like well-regarded by his uh, by people who served with him. Um, uh, so he had a, a pretty, um, you know, he had a military career that ended with uh, uh, he was awarded the, the bronze star a few times. And then uh, in 2018, he set up this company, this private security company called Silvercore USA. And he was known back when this company started. Uh, he had this idea to place um, like undercover. Special Forces soldiers, like former veterans in schools with weapons so that the, the idea was that if you had like highly trained soldiers in schools, like pretending to be teachers, uh, you know, nobody would attack schools like there would be no more school shootings. And if there were, you had these like highly trained soldiers who would be able to respond uh, at, a, at the drop of a hat. So there were some reports early on, uh, you know, back in 2018, 2019 that mentioned that initiative that he had launched. And uh, we also know that he, again, provided security at some Trump events. So in the first article that we published in Bellingcat, uh, we found some footage of him in the background of Trump rallies, sort of you know working security. Um, So as far as we can tell, you know, he's a he's a he's a person who who served in the military uh, and who came out of the military. And, and you know, he must have sat down and thought, what can I do now that I'm out of the army? You know, what am I good at? What could I do? Um, And he decided uh, he was going to try to set up a company. And eventually, that led him to signing a contract with uh, the Venezuelan opposition to to you know carry out this operation.
1: Not all special operations forces members, uh, former or otherwise, are cut from the same cloth. It's why you know just like any other group, there's a wide variety. Uh, do we have any sense of what? this gentleman was like from people that worked with him, the people who served with him. What do they say about him?
0: Also, where is he right now? Do we have any idea? So I, he's still communicating with the media, uh, because every once in a while you'll see something published in the Washington Post or the wall street journal and Ellie will cite him. I'll say like, we, you know, we were on the phone with him and he said this, right? Um, he, the company was founded in Florida. So I believe he lives in Florida. As far as I'm aware, he's still there. Um, the associated presses reported a few days ago that, he, um, that he might be under investigation for weapon smuggling. You know, I think that's uh, maybe one of the many charges that he's, he could potentially be facing. Right. Um, but as far as I'm aware, he's he's in Florida. And, uh, you know, again, this is based on reporting that I've read uh, about him. Um, and in particular, the one the report from May 1st from Joshua Woodman Um you know, people say he's the kind of guy I'm paraphrasing somebody's te- um, commentary on him. He's just sort of the guy that you wanted to be with in combat, like the kind of guy you want to have in a foxhole with you. He was a really good shot. Apparently, he was just a, a really motivated soldier. Um, but then there's also a testimony from people who say that he was, um, you know, he sort of got in way over his head with this whole idea about the, um, the mercenary force. Uh, you know, maybe he was an overzealous entrepreneur who like dreamt way too big. Right. And he was just kind of bit off more than he could chew. Uh, but from everything that I've read uh, from people who, who said that they knew him, um, he was somebody who, who was a good, a soldier, you know, by, by the standards of a soldier.
1: Okay. Yeah, um, earlier you'd said that there was a sense from people on the ground that like he couldn't pull this off and this thing was not going forward. Uh,
0: what are you based, like, where are you getting that from? So we know, so there's a couple of things here. So the first one is, is again, reporting from the Associated Press uh, that says that people, so this agreement that Goudreau allegedly had with the opposition was that uh, he would train Venezuelan expatriate soldiers in camps in Venezuela. And these camps had already been hinted at in previous reporting from, from 2018 and 2019 related to this figure, Cleaver Alcalá. He was a major general in the Venezuelan army, and he was a lifelong Chavez supporter. He served with Chavez in the 1992 coup, and he was, a, uh, he, was always, he was in the military during the Chavez era. When Maduro came to power, he kind of fell out with grace from the government, and he eventually moved to Colombia, and he became a very low, uh, vocal detractor of the government, uh, a very vocal dissident. So Alcala had been working on setting up something like a, a mercenary army or an expatriate army Uh, that was built on the soldiers who were essentially deserting from Venezuela in droves, right? So you have to remember also the backdrop for this is is the Venezuelan exodus, which is, uh, you know, the largest uh, migration wave out of the country in the the nation's history, right? We're talking about, uh, you know, millions of Venezuelans uh, fleeing the country due to poor socioeconomic conditions there. So there were lots and lots of soldiers, there are lots and lots of soldiers in Colombia who Alcalá was trying to tap into this force that they could then... Uh, used to fight their way back into Venezuela and overthrow the government, right? Like a really big uh, dream. So, uh, in the Associated Press article, uh, there, there's an interview with somebody who went to one of these training camps to train the soldiers there, and their description of the camp of the camps are like very dire. Uh, you know, there's like no running water. Like the got the the soldiers like didn't have any food or equipment, and it just doesn't. I mean, it paints a picture of of like a really, uh, you know, terrible place to be. These camps, right? And not the sort of place where you're training a force, an elite force that will topple a government. Um so that's one that's one factor that that um um that leads us to to think that this thing wasn't really gonna work out and that and that these camps and that this training program really wasn't gonna be effective. Uh the other is the fact that we've heard both from Goudreau and from the opposition that despite the fact that they signed a contract that was worth two hundred and twelve uh sorry, two hundred and thirteen million dollars, the opposition never really paid Goudreau any money. So, Goudreau said, look, I can do this for you. Like, I can train your soldiers to, to launch this operation, but I'm going to need all this money. And we know that uh, two, at least two opposition figures signed a contract with Silvercore USA saying, yes, let's do it. But they immediately, like, they never paid him. They didn't even pay the retainer, uh, the $1.5 billion retainer that Goudreau had asked for. And so, almost immediately after, like, the ink wasn't drawing the contract, Goudreau stopped, wasn't getting any support from the opposition, like any money, any monetary support. And so uh, this is back in October, November of last year. So right off the bat, this operation lacks any kind of logistics, any kind of support, um, and, and it's just doomed to fail from the very beginning. And in fact, as the Venezuelan opposition claims, uh, it, it was never even supposed to go ahead. Like they never even gave it the go ahead uh, because, again, it was clear to a lot of people that it was not going to work. Do we know if, if he was if Goudreau was
1: ever on the ground in Venezuela, like actually there in person
0: for any in Venezuela
1: place? or in, Venezuela, in, in, a, no. in Colombia, rather? I'm sorry. Uh,
0: yes. In Colombia. Yes. So, again, this is based on on the AP report uh, reporting that he was in Colombia to have meetings with um, both um, Alcala and members of, of the Venezuelan opposition, other members of the Venezuelan opposition. And he went there. I mean, it was essentially a business trip. Uh, where he would just go and you know, like he was selling a service, right? He's like, you know, who needs who needs somebody to train soldiers because I could do that.
1: All right, and he's not the
0: only green beret involved, right? That's correct. So we know we know also that there are two other individuals. So their names are Luke Denman and Aaron Barry, and they're both also former green berets who are currently uh, under custody. They're in detention in Venezuela um and there's been two uh you know confession videos confession you know quote unquote because they're they're obviously propaganda pieces um they're heavily edited like they they jump forward and backwards in time you can tell they're sort of being coerced into reading statements right um and they're they're currently in Venezuela right now like they're they're prisoners of the Maduro government accused of being mercenaries uh trying to overthrow the government
1: all right let's let's back up a little bit um Can you give me kind of the blow-by-blow timeline of what we know of the actual
0: operation? Yeah, so um, we know that there was – that the Venezuelan authorities detected a a ship, a boat, off the coast of uh, Venezuela, north of a place called Macuto, um, in the early morning hours of Sunday, uh, before the sun had come up. We know that there are videos on Twitter – uh, showing police helicopter activity or military helicopter activity out at sea and, and vessel activity out at sea. And you can hear shooting in these videos. So we know that that's the time when this boat was intercepted. Uh, again, that was very early in the morning. At about 730 on Sunday, uh, the Minister of the Interior makes his press conference and he says, we've, we've arrested these people, uh, who were trying to invade Venezuela. Um, as the morning passes, we start to get, uh, images. Shared by Venezuelan journalists of the equipment and the weapons that the authorities claimed to have seized as part of this operation. And they included things like, uh, yeah, like, uh, assault rifles. Uh, there was two vehicles that were waiting for them allegedly on shore that machine guns on them. Uh, you know, just the sort of equipment that I guess you would, if you were an armed group, like you would use those sort of things, right? Um, by, um, Sunday afternoon, we've got confirmation from Goudreau and his Venezuelan cohort that, uh, this, invade, that this incursion really was a part of Oper- Operation Gideon and that, uh, uh, that there was more. So they, they keep hinting at more, like there's more people coming, we have more people being deployed. Goudreau in his very first video says, Uh, I'm paraphrasing. He says something like we have men in the West and the East and the South, and they're sort of converging on Caracas, right? So he's painting this picture like this larger operation that's going on and that only this small um, uh, force was uh, intercepted. Sunday night, we get the tweet from uh, Silvercore USA saying, you know, like, stay tuned. If you're at the Venezuelan government, there's more people coming. Uh, there's a strike force underway, I think he says, uh, 60 Venezuelans and two former Green Berets. Uh, on Monday um, early afternoon, we get confirmation via images of a second boat that has been intercepted. And this one was intercepted um, near north of a place called Chuao, which is just a little bit west of Macuto. And it was a very similar story. Uh, The boat was intercepted at sea. There's footage of of people on this boat um, from a helicopter, you know, racing their arms in the air, surrendering to the authorities. And they were brought ashore by the Venezuelan authorities. Uh, There's images of them with their hands behind their back after they were detained. And this is the group to which uh, Luke and uh, Aaron belonged. Um, And so they were taken to Caracas where they uh, I I believe they're still in Caracas right now in, in custody. And then, um, after Monday, we, we're occasionally hearing news of more people getting arrested in connection to this. Now, I should say, um, that whenever the Venezuelan government has said, like, oh, we arrested two more people related to this. We've arrested three more people related to this. Um, we don't know for sure. I mean, we have to take the Venezuelan government at their word. And I would advise against doing that just based on the track record of the Venezuelan government. Um, and the, the images that they present um of people that they've arrested supposedly in connection to Operacion Gedeon don't really seem to indicate that that would be the case necessarily and i'm saying specifically that uh you know in these images we see people like wearing you know shorts and like t-shirts uh who have been arrested like they are undist- indistinguishable from any other sort of person who might be arrested for like a drug crime or something um so what i'm saying is that we don't see anything in the images that the venezuelan government has been releasing since now, these two boats were uh, intercepted. That would suggest that um, these individuals are involved with Operación Gedeon. But since Monday, over two dozen have been implicated and arrested.
1: Right. That's one of the one of the things that's hard to track about this story is that it's hard. How do you report on something like this when you can't trust the Venezuelan government? You can't trust Silver Core USA. Um, how do you put the story together? How do you track all of it?
0: Yeah. So, um, one of the things I think that Bellingcat is, is known for is, is for sticking to the facts, right? So whenever we're reporting on something, we need to be careful that we talk only about what we know based on the facts. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not sort of, um, you know, we could speculate whether or not the people that have been arrested allegedly by the government um, are related to a person or not. Um, but, you know, if we were reporting that um, you would caveat that by saying like, you know, this is an allegation that the Venezuelan government has made. Right. Uh, and this is the allegation. Right. Um, but as far as putting the stories together, the first two, uh, you know, we're looking at what does, what can we see in the images? What is obvious from the pictures? What can we sort of uh, take from the, from the, from, 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 not just what the Venezuelan government is saying, but what from other sources are saying, right? So that eventually you're hopefully able to, like, triangulate something that approximates the truth uh, that isn't just uh, based on one side's description of it, right? So a really good example of that is, again, uh, when the Venezuelan government said on Sunday morning, we've arrested terrorist mercenaries, right? Um, you know, you you ask yourself, like, where is the evidence, right? Like, show me, like, why do you say that they're Venezuelan, that they're terrorist mercenaries, right? And um, Later on that day, we start to see pictures of weapons, of uh, other military equipment coming from Venezuelan journalists, right? And so as that information begins to trickle in, you can start to sort of corroborate what were at first independent data points and build a complete, a more complete picture that can, you can say, okay, this is probably something that happened, right? Um, so it's a pretty lengthy process. Um, And one that is, I think, difficult to to navigate, Uh, but it takes it takes uh, it's it's the sort of thing that takes like slow thinking and and like double checking always like uh, your assumptions. Like, what am I assuming here? Um, Yeah. Right. You
1: don't want to be the publication that rushes out. I mean, God bless the Associated Press and the amazing story they published on the first. But you you don't want to be the first to press with the headline that ends up being completely wrong. Right. Especially if you're Damn. and Bellingcat does things a little bit differently than most mainstream outlets, I think. In I mean yeah. that in a positive way.
0: Thanks. Yeah. And I think that we actually were pretty quick with these uh, stories. Uh, so, you know, there's the two different kinds of, you know, there's I think you could if you had to divide Bellingcat stories into into two, you know, there would be like the long form. Like we have spent two years analyzing these pictures and this is what we can, you know, we can tell from them. Uh, and then there is a the shorter sort of like uh, the sort of stuff that you see, for example, from Robert Evans after there's a mass shooting that's connected to like 4chan or 8chan, for example. And those are more like um, uh, pieces that are like, look, this is what we know. And this is what it's on. the This is what we it's on the Internet. What we can verify is true. Um, and, you know, there's lots of questions that we don't know really the answer to. There's lots of questions that we haven't asked yet because it's so early on. But this is what we do know. And here's the evidence. Right so even the the pieces that come out pretty quickly after something has happened um uh tend to stick to that right like this is what we know from the evidence, and here's the evidence you can sort of look at it yourself
1: all right what do we do we know anything else about who these green berets are uh not, not, yeah, so, yeah the the ones that are that are in captivity
0: at the moment. So both of them had social media profiles, um, and uh, you know, you, uh, as as investigators, not just Bellingcat, but lots of people who who are um, you know, you don't have to be an investigator in, at an at an organization to do this. You can just you know look their names up on Facebook, and see what they were up to. Uh, we know that uh, at least Barry served in Germany at some point, um, and uh, I think he was actually arrested with his uh, German driver's license, if I'm not mistaken. Um, which was, um, his, one of the pieces of identification that he had with him. Um, and we also know, again, that they, uh, the information that they provided via these videotaped confessions that you can see, uh, on Venezuelan media. Now, again, um, a huge caveat there because these are, you know, this isn't a a confession that you would see, like, in a courtroom that was carried out with, like, the guy, the person's lawyer at hand, right? Uh, these are, these are meant to be propaganda pieces. So when you watch these confessions, uh, you know, Luke and, and Aaron are, are providing answers to these questions, but you can, you know, some of the questions are very clearly like propaganda based, right? Like, so they're asked a lot, like, uh, why, you know, what, what, how would you feel if somebody invaded the United States? Like, what would you do? Right. Um, and so if you, you know, if, if you watch those interviews, uh, carefully, you might be able to, uh, glean some information about like what kind of people they are, um, but again, I would advise against taking the information in those interviews at face value because they're they've been heavily edited. Um, you know, I'm sure they were coer- coerced and um, and again, they're propaganda pieces above anything else.
1: Yeah, something I think that's important to keep in mind whenever we talk about stuff like this, and I think we do a good job of this on this show is that um, sometimes a story can have more than one asshole. <laughs> yeah, right. Like both sides yeah. of a thing can be bad, uh, yeah. in in different nuanced ways. Yeah, right.
0: No, okay, sure. Uh, I mean, I I I was asked this, um, yeah, uh, recently, um, and and yeah, th- I think this is one of the situations where, um, you know, th- there is no necessarily a good guy in this. Um, one of the things that I'm afraid of is this is not just related to this event but so I'm I'm from Venezuela I, I grew up there and I have a lot of family there and um the Venezuelan situation has shaped my life um I haven't lived there in 25 years but um my entire professional career like from being a graduate student 10 years ago to being a, a doctoral candidate now to working in Bellingham has really been shaped by by Venezuela I care deeply about it I Um, partially because some of my family still lives there. And not a day goes by that I don't think about Venezuela and I don't um, feel terrible for what's happening there. So I'm I'm afraid that people will, people who are not very familiar with the Venezuela, who maybe never heard of it or or who just don't know anything about what's happening there, will read what happened. Like they'll see what happened there and they'll say, oh, wow, clearly these U.S. guys are terrible and bad. And so that means like by definition, if if those are the bad guys, then by definition the Venezuelan government is the good guy, and I should cheer for the Venezuelan government. Or, you know, I should like vocally defend it and on social media and stuff, right? Uh, and I don't think that's the case. I think I think as you're saying, like this is a case where both sides are are bad, um, and uh, you know they they both have done things that sh- they should be condemned for. Um, but it's it's much more complicated than like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy.
1: Right. And can you tell us a little bit more about the opposition? What, and especially what the yeah. reaction to all of this has been and like, has there been yeah. any kind of political fallout for them because of
0: it? Yeah. Yeah. Like speaking of like all the bad actors involved in this, right? So it's not just Silver Corp USA. It's also the Venezuelan opposition because they, they in a way so helped to precipitate this by engaging Goudreau. So uh, you might be familiar with um, uh, Juan Guaido who who uh, um, is the leader of the opposition at the moment And so this is another part of the story that's kind of really confusing. Jordan Goudreau released a document on Sunday that had his signature and the signature of uh, two opposition politicians, last names Rendon and Vergara, and it also had Juan Guaido's signature. And this was he said it was a contract. It's like this is the contract that we signed for this incursion. Right. And as you can see, and he held it up, this is. Juan Guaido's signature and and Rivera's signature and Rendon's signature and my signature.
1: And this is the subject of your May seventh story, correct?
0: Yes. Is this document okay? And then, but here's where it gets tricky because on on uh, a few days later, the Washington Post published a 41 page document that appears to be the attachments. It, it, It appears to be sort of like an amended, a longer version of that original document, or an attachment to that original document. And that attachment, the 41-page attachment, has very clearly spells out, like, this is, you know, these are the rules of engagement, this is what a protected building is, this is what happens when we detain Venezuelan citizens, these are the weapons that we can use. It's like a a, a document that you would draft if you're, like, you know, going to invade a country, right? As a as a private military company. And that document does not have Guido's signature on it. it. But it has the signatures of the other two opposition representatives. So, the messaging from the opposition on this has been really confused Uh because you have Guaido and uh, the opposition saying, look, you know, b- uh, alternative, like they'll alternate sort of they'll say, look, both documents are are f- falsified by the government because they're supposed to like they want to trick us, trick everybody into thinking I signed this. But then you have both Vergara and Rendon saying, no, we signed that document, uh, but we don't know how, how Guaido's signature got on the other one. So it's, it's a super, it's like a soup of like super confused um, uh, uh, narratives um, that can boil down to, uh, you know, we did sign uh, one document with the with Goudreau and Silvercore USA. Uh, but that was an exploratory document is what the opposition is saying. And we stopped talking to Goudreau in November of 2019 and we told him forget about it. We're not going to do this anymore. Like this is over. Right. Um, that's as coherent uh, as an explanation as I can give you about the opposition stance on this. Now, why would you like, why would they sign the document and then tell them, you know what, forget it. Cause you know, by signing it, you're, you're sort of like, you know, you signed a contract with somebody. Right. So like, why would you like, why didn't they not say, let me read the document and then I'll tell you if we can go ahead with it or not. And if we can go ahead, I'll sign it, you know? Um, so far, Guaido has survived this. Um, he he has not been arrested, which is something that a lot of people were, were expecting, I think, because this is the, the closest that he's been um, connected to, like a legitimate coup to overthrow Maduro. But he's still free. Uh, he's still the head of the opposition, although he's taken a huge hit, I think, uh, uh, in people's confidence in him. Uh, um, so I don't know what the next few weeks look like, but I, I would be... I would be surprised if he is still the leader of the opposition by this time next year.
1: Well, and a bunch of his advisors have resigned. His aides and advisors have resigned,
0: right? Yeah, including the two who signed the document. So Vergara and uh, and Rendon resigned uh, yesterday, right? Like they're you know they're they're saying like yeah we signed this document clearly it was a mistake. So you know like sorry we're leaving right? And then the uh, official opposition um, news portal. Uh, sorry, press portal released a statement saying like, yes, you know, they've resigned. We thank them for their service and we, you know, accept their resignation, like just like the most generic statement. Um, but I think this is, um, uh, you know, people have been looking to Guaido for leadership. Um, obviously as a leader of the opposition, um, uh, and, and, and whatever popularity he had at, at the start of his tenure as a leader, and he was very popular at first, I think has, has really, uh, diminished over the years. Uh, largely part of uh, because he he hasn't been able to to deliver a victory over the Maduro government and I I don't know I mean I think this will I don't think he'll be able to recover for this like as low as his popularity was and the level of confidence was with uh, with um, uh, among Venezuelan people before this um, I think this is going to leave a really dark mark in his record and I again I don't know if he'll survive it.
1: All right, we're going to pause there for a break. You are listening to War College. We are talking about the. Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. All right, listeners, welcome back to War College. We are on, talking about Venezuela and the coup that went wrong. Let me ask you a tangent question. Yeah. Do people like Maduro? Like, Chavez, I get it. Like, I understood him. Um, you know, he was a very charismatic figure. and yeah. But Maduro is not. Yeah. Like, how does he maintain support?
0: Yeah, so the short answer is, is that no. He he's a deeply unpopular figure. Uh and it's uh, there's a lot of factors for that. A chief amongst them is is the fact that Chavez was charismatic and he was a leader. Uh like he had leadership ability, right? And he had the characteristics of a leader. Like he had a commanding presence, uh you know, he had a long military record. Uh and just people listened to him, right? Uh I was talking to a Venezuelan um um Friend once, and and I was you know asking him. This is early on in the Maduro presidency, what he thought about Maduro and like how he compared to Chavez. And he he told me he said you know if there was if we if one day we went to the supermarket and there wasn't milk, you know if there was a milk shortage, uh, you would watch TV that night and Chavez would be on TV and he would be angry. He would say why is there no milk in the country? Where's the minister of milk? Like who you know who's who's responsible for this? And he would call them up, and the next day there would be milk in the supermarket. Right? like Chavez would say, I order that there be milk in the supermarket tomorrow. And he says with Maduro, the same thing happens and you go back to the supermarket and there's like fewer milk, there's less milk than there was yesterday, right? So uh, he he's sort of a bumbling, you know, this is, he's not, as you said, he's not Chavez. Um, why is he in power? Why does he re- continue to be in power? Uh, largely because he has the support of the military and in particular, the, the sort of from the mid-level up, of the army, um, military um, support is is everything to Maduro. Um, the Minister of Defense is an incredibly powerful figure in the country. Uh, there are generals, active duty generals, who are uh, in important positions in the country. Up until just a few weeks ago. Uh, a national guard uh, military officer was the head of uh, like the minister of oil and the head of the, uh, the of Petroleo, which is a state-owned oil firm, right? So there's tons of money coming in uh, to the military. The military uh, benefits directly from having Maduro in power, and so they have an interest in keeping him in power. If the military decided that they didn't want to keep him in power anymore or that they didn't support him, uh, he would he would not have any support.
1: Is there, mili- is there any kind of military opposition to him within within the officers? Like, this is not the same thing because he worked for CICPC, but I think about Oscar Perez in 2017. Yeah, yeah so
0: these sort of like insurrections that I've taken, including the Oscar Perez one, and there's been a couple of other ones throughout the years, they've tended to involve relatively... Small numbers of individuals and uh, relatively like low ranking, right? So we're talking about, you know, um, we're not talking about people in positions of, of power in the military. They tend to be uh, lower level soldiers, right? Uh, and it makes sense because they're the ones who like the crumbs from the top don't make it all the way to the bottom, right? So, while you, you know, the generals and the admirals and all the high ranking people, they're like directly fill, lining their pockets with, you know, money from from having majority power through corruption schemes, drug trafficking, et cetera. You know, your sort of rank and file private isn't benefiting from that necessarily, right? And so, those are the kinds of people that will, every once in a while, get together with a couple of other like minded individuals and they'll make the news, like Oscar Paris or like operation Aurora from from last year from December of last year where a, a small group of soldiers raided a couple of military bases uh, in, in Bolivar State. Uh, but those um, insurrections are they've always been small um, they've always been isolated and so they've never really amounted to anything beyond making headlines for a day or two. Uh, and, uh, you know the only exception is probably Oscar Perez because he made it a point to sort of like always be in the news cycle right. Um, right, he was
1: he was a former actor, correct? If I remember correctly. Yeah, and, he, and also he had were, like
0: very striking features and was good in
1: front of the camera. And yeah. Was obviously trying to play that up.
0: Yes, exactly. So he he knew, right? I think he understood like the importance of the media. Yeah, so he was uh, a a fascinating figure um including because he was a, a former actor. So he had a, he had an Instagram account that had like like really photogenic shots of him like doing trick shots with his pistol uh and just like he was in a movie at some point um as well um and and he i think he understood the 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 um the importance of of messaging right and and of being in the media and and, and sort of like looking good on camera uh, and so he's an exception to to these like small insurrections that take place every once in a while and then um sort of fizzle out right but even his insurrection ended right about 6 months after it began um so again i think that's indication that that look there are there probably i'm sure there's discontent in in the military because there's discontent in venezuela right like soldiers don't live independent of the rest of society right like they go home at night uh you know they're also uh, they also have family members who don't have access to medicine who don't have access to food right so um there's discontent but um, the the issue is that there's not discontent necessarily at the at the levels where you can actually affect some kind of change, right? Uh, which then you know are like the middle to higher ranks of the military,
1: right? Because you have to make sure. I mean, it's in. There's a great book called uh, The Dictator's Handbook. Uh, the author's names escape me, but it was basically like these classically trained economists kind of looking at. Um, how a dictator stays in power. Who do you have to please? And up at the top of the list is keep the military well-funded and well-fed. Um, and you'll be in power for a very long time. And that seems to be what's going on here. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, as I said, they you know, the, the the higher ranks are benefiting directly from from Maduro, right? And I mean this is we could talk about hour for hours about this, but one of the central pillars of of I would argue the Maduro government, the Maduro era, is something called the the civil military union, Union Civico Militar. This is a um I guess it's a, a tenet of Chavismo of the political philosophy that calls for an an erasing of the boundary between the civilian and the military sphere, right? So, uh, you know, I, I live in Canada now. If you live in the United States, like you, you probably have a, in your head, when you think about the state government, you have an understanding or you have an image of, of a government that has divisions, right? And one, and there's like the military side of government and that's very separate from the civilian side of government, right? But in Venezuela, Maduro has really been pushing to, to remove that imaginary boundary and to give the military much more power over the civil sphere, right? I think. Um, uh, you know, it's it's, an, it's a sort of a utopian idea, I guess, because you would what's supposed to happen is that the civilian sphere is supposed to also have power over the military. But what's happening in Venezuela is it's very much a one-sided relationship. So you have the military having increasingly, um, uh, increasing influence over the civil sphere by being members of cabinet positions, right? Um, for example, and so uh, that that erasure of that boundary. It also makes it really hard to to separate. Um, it, it makes it harder to address the issue that is the military supporting Maduro because the military is a, is a lot in Venezuela. The military is everything.
1: What are the what are like the employment numbers for it? Out of curiosity, like how many people does it employ? You know that that kind of thing.
0: Oh, for the military, oh boy, I'd have to I'd have to look them up. Uh, I'm not sure. I know that the militia. Um, so the, the National Bolivarian Militia. I think Majuro, um has said that there's over three million members of the militia. So these are civilian members of, of the National Bolivarian Militia, which is a relatively new force. Uh, but for the for the for the active duty or the reserve military, I'd, I'd have to look it up. Um, yeah, I'd have to check on. I'd have to check on that.
1: Okay, swinging back into our uh, our tale of woe here. Um, one of the things that really struck me, and I think you mentioned it in one of your – I'm pretty sure you mentioned it in your May 5th article. Uh, looking at these cachet, this cache of equipment that they were supposedly going to be meeting and using for their coup, uh, there was an airsoft rifle in there. Yeah. What, yes. like, which I feel just tells me so much about what was going on.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that that was really strange because there were also real weapons on in that were captured, right? So it's not like, uh, you know, that was the only gun that was seen that day and it happened to be an airsoft rifle. So that, you know, that makes it all the more confusing, right? Um, I, I, I've heard people speculate, um, online that, um, somebody made a connection between, I think this is somebody who commented on the article in Bellingcat who said, you know, in the AP article, uh, they talked about how the camps in Colombia where they were training these soldiers, they had like no resources, like nobody, they had no logistical resources, no equipment, and they were training with broomsticks. Uh, that's, that was reported in the AP. So they thought, well, maybe this is like one of the guns that they were training with, and they brought it on along with them for some reason. Um, I read somewhere else that um, somebody was speculating that it might have been used to like take out like light bulbs, um, you know, like silently um you know i'm not a tactician i'm not a i've I've never been in the military i don't know how feasible that is um but it just it's like another one in a lot of like curveballs that that we were all thrown um since the story broke you know why was there an air rifle there i don't know it was pictured among the the equipment that was captured on that day um and uh and then now it's part of the story yeah there's
1: I think that's one of the fascinating things about this story is that there's so many curveballs. It, it like the more you dig and the more you learn about it, it is just so
0: odd. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean there's more questions that I, you know we were all talking as we were following this it seemed like at every every new revelation was like a moment where we all went like wait, what? Like wow, and what does that mean and you know why would they do that, right? Um so um yeah, you know, we don't have, we don't have answers to, to a lot of those questions right now, right? And that's why it's, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult to talk about this in a certain way because, um, even, even the facts as we understand them seem to be really absurd, right? So it's hard to cut the, what's real and what's not real because what we know is real is also kind of really absurd. Um, so it's just been a really surreal story to, uh, to report on.
1: I mean, we live in absurd times though.
0: Yeah, right? I guess so. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. Yeah, like the simulation that the universe runs on is like collapsing, and it's like consistently like pumping out more and more absurd scenarios. Yeah.
1: Um, why? Just a couple more questions. I know you've got a heart out here soon. Sure. Why? Uh, why is America so obsessed with Venezuela? And and I mentioned I say that it's not just the political right; uh, it is also the political left. Yeah. And it's become yeah. like a weird on, it's become something to uh, yell at each other about online.
0: Why? Yeah. As if we needed more, right. more excuses to yell at each other. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, you know, that's a really interesting question. I think, I think Venezuela encapsulates a lot of what we see um, troubling in the world in terms of politics from a lot of different sides. Right. So like if you're on the right or on the left, uh, you know, if you're if you're a right wing pundit, for example, which, uh, you know, not a lot of people are, thankfully. But if you're like some right wing pundit on like Fox News, you might like you might be really obsessed with Venezuela because, you know, it's socialism. Right. And it's socialism is spreading. And if we let socialist Venezuela, you know, if we elect so and so that here in November, then we're going to become like socialist Venezuela. Right. So so to some people, Venezuela is something that you can point to and like score a point over someone online. You can say, look, your political philosophy doesn't work. And look at Venezuela. right? Look at how bad it is there. Look at the hospitals. Look at the food. Right. Um, if you're on the other side of the aisle, I think um, uh, Venezuela at some point represented a really hopeful and a really encouraging model for a different way to do go- to do to, to, to govern. Right. So this is the very early Chavez era uh, you know Chavez came with a really nice message of inclusion of of the working of the poor uh of Venezuela who had been neglected for so long from the political dialogue really for decades right so chavez was elected as you were sort of explicitly saying like i'm I'm going to speak to the poor like I'm going to rule for the poor I'm going to govern for them they've been neglected for so long and that's a nice message right like that's i I want governments to do that and so for a lot of people, I think Venezuela represented um um yeah, like a, like a vision of a, of a better future in a certain way. And so everything that happens there that is negative, you can point to and say, well, you know, it was going well until you got involved, like the, the U.S. got involved, right? So I think it's, 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 there's almost like a cold war mentality, I think, uh, about Venezuela where, um, different interests are just fighting, <laughs> uh, in this case, virtually over, over what it all means. Uh, to score political points at home. Uh, so it's a bit of a perfect storm, unfortunately, for online debates.
1: Right. Everyone pro- everyone sees themselves reflected in it and projects their own ideology on- onto the conflict and has it reflected in yeah. them, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is bad, and we should stop doing it, but we're not going to,
0: uh, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs>
1: uh, Giancarlo, thank you so much for coming onto War College and walking us through this bizarre and complicated story.
0: No, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: That's it for this week, War College listeners. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin O'Dell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, please follow us on Twitter, at War underscore College, at MJ Galt, and at K J K KJKNodell. We will be back next week with more stories from behind the front lines. Stay safe until then